start a brand new series today. We will run this the whole month of December called Hidden Christmas, okay? Hidden Christmas. This is, uh, there's a new book that Pastor Timothy Keller out of New York City has written with the same title, and I have borrowed uh, from that title and using a bit of his material in that book. He is an outstanding uh, teacher and author, and I would highly recommend you pick this book up, and uh, it's called Hidden Christmas. And the idea of Hidden Christmas is that when you look at the gospel story and you look at the story of Jesus coming into the world, you are going to see that it has a lot of rough edges to it. Um, and it's amazing how, how much we think we know about Christmas and how little we actually do know about Christmas. A lot of it is shrouded in tradition and nice rose-colored uh, Christmas cards and, and all these things and all of this pomp and celebration. That's all okay, but if you really look at the Christmas story, wow, it is a rough story. And in some of that roughness and in some of those hard edges are buried some amazing truths that apply to our lives today, even the 21st century. So we're going to try and look under the surface and look and see the truths of Christmas that sometimes can be just veiled from our eyes in this series, A Hidden Christmas. So today we're going to be looking at a very famous passage. If you've been in church for any length of time, you have heard this at Christmas time before. It's from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament and chapter 9 and verse 6. Just listen to it. I'm going to read it to you. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we quote this verse and love this verse at Christmas time. It is a powerful piece of scripture, uh, but there is so much behind it. Uh, that we need to learn to get the full meaning of it. It's kind of hidden from us a little bit. And so I want to talk about this passage at some length today. Um, first, a little bit about the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, his name means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. He is a, a prophet who wrote a huge book in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Um, he gives us much information about Jesus in his work. We're familiar with pieces and parts of it that we quote often. Uh, he writes between 750 and 680 before Jesus is born. We're talking 2,700 years ago, roundabout. This prophet writes, uh, but he has amazing things to say to us today. Uh, he was a prophet, and people often think of prophets in strange ways when they look into the pages of the Bible. Let me tell you what prophets were like. He was a, a forth teller and he was a foreteller. Okay, this is what prophets did. We tend to like the foretelling, but we don't realize that the foretelling is the dominant um, the dominant activity of prophets. Uh, we know the prophet Isaiah from the passage that he writes about Jesus. He was bruised for our iniquities and wounded from our uh, for our transgressions from Isaiah 53. This is the most familiar passage uh, in churches. And he writes about things in the future as if they've already happened. And so he's a little bit confusing to read. Uh, if we do not understand the general circumstances 
which he writes in and which prophets write in that we're going to be lost and we're going to miss the meaning of what they have to say. Uh, prophets often what they did was to foretell. And the idea was they would say, look, Israel, here's what God says. God has given you His law. God has told you how to live. And here is what God says. And if you don't live the way God says, then trouble will come. And they would foretell this and they would warn people and they would say, you've got to live the way God says to live or trouble is going to come. And then the people would not live the way God said to live and then the the prophet would often foretell what would come. They say, well, because you have not followed God's ways, this is what will now happen. But they spent most of their time doing the foretelling and this is why they weren't too popular because a lot of the things that they had to say were a bit negative. It was troubles coming if you don't do what you know you should do. And so people often dislike prophets uh, because they didn't always have the greatest of news uh, for the people, especially if they were living in a way that God didn't want them to live. And so when Isaiah picks up his pen, if you will, and puts it to paper or papyrus in the day, you've got to understand that he's got some things on his mind. Otherwise, you're going to miss what this Christmas passage is about. And uh, we need a little bit of a history lesson to understand this. And lest you think this may be boring, and this is 2,700-year-old history, okay? We're talking about uh, things like uh, corruption in leadership, uh, bad moral decisions in leadership in terms of things as... as, uh, as embarrassing as their sex lives. We're talking about civil war within a nation, uh, corruption, manipulation with money and taxes. Uh, All these kinds of things were what was on Isaiah's mind. Very similar circumstances to what we see today around the world. And there's three things that he's thinking about all the time when he puts his pen to the paper And the first is the division that took place in the nation of Israel. Um, And it has to do with a man by the name of Solomon, King Solomon. Any of you know who he was? He's supposed to be the wisest man on the face of the earth, earth, at least at the time. There's a very famous uh, story in the Old Testament of these two two women uh, who were fighting over this little baby. Do you remember the story? And uh, they were both saying, well, the baby's mine. and, And nobody knew who it was. And Solomon came up with the idea as well. Let's... You know the story, right? And when if we do that to the baby, then we'll find out whose baby it is. And of course, we found out whose it was. And uh, so he's known for being the, the wisest man on the face of the earth. But he made some terrible decisions. Some very, very unwise decisions. And particularly uh, in, in the area of his relationships with women. Uh, we're talking about uh, hundreds and hundreds of women who were not worshippers of the God Yahweh. And because of his poor decisions in his moral life and in his personal life, God says there's going to be problems in your nation and it's going to be torn from you and it's going to be split. We see this described in 1 Kings chapter 11 at the height of Solomon's success. He takes all these wives from all of these ungodly nations, the Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites and every other ite you can find. And he's got what you would call in that day, it's an old word, a bit of a harsh word, he's got a, a harem of 700 
wives and princesses, and he's got 300 concubines. Now, I know that sometimes today we look at the lives of political leaders and we think that they're very, very morally corrupt. Well, look at Solomon. Okay, this is corrupt with a capital C. Uh, he made terrible, terrible decisions and it cost him the kingdom and God said that it would. He may have done this and had this huge, uh, this huge amount of women in his life uh, for political reasons and diplomatic reasons to try and you know, broker peace with other nations. He, it may have been some sort of carnal competition with other kings in the day. We don't really know, but he allows himself to make these kinds of decisions and God says there's trouble that's going to come. God predicts that the kingdom's going to be torn out of his hand uh, from, uh, by his son Rehoboam after Solomon dies. And this happens in 931 B.C. This is before um, Isaiah is writing. Rehoboam goes against the advice of Solomon's counselors, the wise senior counselors. And he looks to the advice of the younger and less experienced counselors. And Solomon had taxed the people with heavy taxes. And Rehoboam said, bring on more taxes. Make it even worse for the people. We'll do what my father did and even more. And the senior advisors, this is politics, telling Rehoboam, don't do that, don't do that. And Rehoboam says, ah, I'm listening to the younger advisors and we're going to push the taxes. And it leads to this this revolt and this civil war that takes place. And so the people rebel against Solomon, rebel against Rehoboam, and they take Jeroboam as their king. And there's this split in the kingdom. And when the dust settles, you've got Rehoboam left uh, being the king of Judah. And you have um, uh, Jeroboam being the king of the north. I'll show you a picture on the screen of what it looked like. Okay, This is the nation of Israel on the right-hand side. And you can see in the center, it's just trying to tell you the map. Israel ended up being the northern kingdom. You've got ten tribes there. And you can see the dotted line tries to separate uh, the northern from the southern. And then you've got Judah in the south. Judah would end up with only two tribes and Israel would end up with all the ten tribes in the north. Okay, And there was this split and it was because of Solomon's poor, poor decisions. Uh, key capital in the north would be Samaria. It's a little bit hard to see. It's right under the arrow uh, the, that points from Israel. That's the, the capital city would be Samaria. And to the south, the capital city would be, of course, the city of Jerusalem. Okay, and You can read in the books of Kings and Chronicles the, the kings of these different nations. But when prophets refer to Israel, they're talking about what's to the north. And when they refer to Judah, they're talking about what's to the south. And this was very much on... Isaiah's mind as he writes. Are you with me so far? Okay, so this is the first big problem. Uh, He's got another thing on his mind. The second major event that he is, is concerned about is that the Assyrians are coming and they are going to take Samaria. 
The Assyrians were a very violent uh, army. They're known in that day to have been a very sadistic army, very powerful army. And um, Isaiah is concerned that the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to take out the capital city of Israel. At that time, as the Assyrians are gaining more and more strength, if you read the first eight chapters of Isaiah, you see there's a lot of doom and gloom uh, in this. And he mentions the Assyrians there uh, at the end of chapter 8 they will look toward the earth the people of Israel and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness it's a very bleak picture he sees that the sins uh, not only of, of Judah to the south but of Israel to the north are going to bring judgment and he knows the Assyrians are coming and he writes with a very heavy heart because he knows this is going to happen it's a dark day and the people it says there are looking toward the earth for a solution and I like what Keller does in his book there he picks up on this and he says when we look toward the earth for an answer to our problems when we look to humanity for an answer to our problems we're not going to find an answer we need an answer from the outside to come into humanity because humanity does not have the stuff to dig itself out of the problems that it has to face and the problems that it has created in the year 722 we have the Assyrians coming in and taking out Samaria and we see the fallout for years and years and years of this in the pages of the Bible even in the New Testament we see there's a feud between the Jews and the Samaritans do you recall the story of the woman at the well uh, where Jesus went and talked to this Samaritan woman where we're told there that Samaritans and Jews aren't supposed to talk to each other because the Assyrians would, would conquer nations and then they would intermarry those nations with their culture and then the children would be produced and this is the Jews would look at them and say oh they're not real Jews they were Samaritans you see and this is why there was this feud because of the hostile takeover of Samaria by these Assyrians are you still with me okay history lesson event number three which is coming, okay? This is the third event on Isaiah's mind as he writes. He will talk more at length about this after chapter 9, but you see that there's something on his mind about the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, um, and he's, he's concerned about judgment taking place there as well. Um, he actually calls his own his own people and the, the nation of Judah and the capital city of Jerusalem. He likens it to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, um, you've called good evil. You've called evil good. You've called light darkness. You've called darkness light. We see the exact same thing happening in the geopolitical situation today. The same, same thing. And uh, he is very concerned about judgment that is going to come. Uh, to the south and he will later on name the Babylonians after chapter 9 but he definitely sees something coming and this would happen in the year 597 and would move on through into 586 BC when the Babylonians came in and, and sacked and burned the temple and took all of the all of the belongings out of the temple and took the people captive and brought them to, to Babylon uh, we know some of those people uh, Daniel and his friends 
Nebuchadnezzar, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know the story from Daniel. Well, they're all captives who were brought into Babylon after that event. So this is what the prophet has on his mind when he starts writing. And as he writes all the way through Isaiah, these are the dominant things on his mind. And every prophet in the Old Testament, virtually all of them, these are the events that are are, are of great concern to them. So 2,700 years later, there's something that God is trying to say to us, even through all of this that has taken place uh, thousands of years ago, and up to this this passage that we read, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. First hidden truth for you. Truth number one, okay? God has a nevertheless for you. God has a nevertheless. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. Nevertheless, even though the Assyrians are coming, even though the nation is in sin, even though the Babylonians are coming, even though Solomon has blown it, nevertheless there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Very important passage. Because what he is saying here is that no matter what the darkness is that has come, God has a plan, God has a nevertheless. He's referring to an event there uh, in 732 BC. The Assyrians are gaining ground. Uh, around a place called Tiglath-Pileser. And the Assyrian king, he takes Gilead, and he takes out Galilee, and and the land of Naphtali, and he uh, deports the people off to Assyria. You can see it in 2 Kings, yeah, I've got the reference there, 15 uh, verse 29. So this is when that land was humbled, but in the future he will honor this land. He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles um, by the way of the sea along the Jordan. If you go back to the map that we had and zoom in there. I've really zoomed in, kind of in the center, you can see the Sea of Galilee, and to the left, you can see Capernaum, where Jesus did a lot of ministry, and you see Nazareth below, and Cana, this is the area, and you see the Jordan River down through the center, this is the area that the prophet is talking about, and he's saying, though the Assyrians took it out, uh, God has a nevertheless, and He's going to honor this area. This is the area where Jesus spent most of His ministry. I will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the Jordan. Each one of us in this room, you have a past. It may be a past that is rather dark. You may be in your present. The Assyrians are there. They, they have, they've taken you out, as it were. Uh, there's darkness and there's trouble and there's gloom. But God has a nevertheless for you. God has an answer. He has a way out. He has something that He's going to do. He may not do it in your timing. He may not do it your way. But He's got a nevertheless for you. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you be destroyed. He has a plan and He's going to work that plan out. If he 
could do it in that context, in that level of despair that those people had, surely He can do it into your in your life today. Even though we don't deserve it, Jesus has, has died for us even while we were yet in our sin. That should, get, that should get you a little bit excited at Christmas time. God has a nevertheless for you. Hidden truth number two. God wants His people to see the light. I can put it to you that way. That's the title of our message today. A light has dawned. God wants His people to see the light. You know, I'm reminded of these lights that we have to set up every Saturday and how we have to point them a certain way. And, you know, we're meeting in the in this movie theater and it's not meant for a church service. We have decided to turn it into that. Well, it's a black box. And that's the way they made it. And we try and brighten it up a little bit. Well, God wants us to see the light in a much bigger way than that. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness. This is right after the verse we just read. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Something is coming to Galilee. There is light coming to it. The light is going to dawn. It's not coming out uh, from inside. It's not coming from the people. It's not coming from them. It's coming from the outside. A light is going to come. A light is going to dawn. Uh, You may not realize this, but the, the Christmas verse, unto us a son is given and so forth, this is not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. How do we even know the verses about Jesus? Well, we know because of what we just read. Uh, In Matthew chapter 4, this passage is quoted with reference to Jesus. And Matthew quotes it and he says there in Matthew 4 and verse 13, uh, that Jesus, leaving Nazareth, he went and, and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Here it is. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea along the Jordan, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And Matthew says, Jesus is the one, He is the light that was promised by Isaiah. And here it is on those living in the shadow of death. A light has dawned. And so we know that this passage in Isaiah 9 is talking specifically about the Lord Jesus. He is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now imagine the hope that would have come to these people when they understood the truth of this passage. The Messiah was coming out of all places, Galilee known in Isaiah's day as the place of the Gentiles. And this is where the Messiah was coming from. And look at the transformation that Isaiah sees uh, that's coming in the future when this light comes. Isaiah 9 verse 3, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. There should 
should be joy in our hearts and an understanding that Jesus is that light. And you cannot extinguish it. You cannot change it. Uh, no, no, no circumstance will alter that. Jesus has come and He is the light of the world. Boy, it's so quiet in here. This kind of stuff should be really, really exciting to you because God gives you hope even in times of darkness. And we should be so appreciative, especially at Christmas, when the culture even acknowledges a little bit of what Christmas is all about. Wow, we should be really blowing the horn. Jesus has come. He is the light of the world. You know, in, in we have a unique... Um, uh, um, uh, kind of configuration of events this year in 2016 because the the Jewish festival of Hanukkah is falling in, on Christmas week. It doesn't always fall that way, but this year it falls on Christmas week. Do any of you know the story of this feast and festival that the Jews celebrate? Raise your hand. Half a, two of you. Okay, do any of you work for Jewish people? Have any of you ever worked for Jewish people? Okay, so yeah, okay, a few of you, yeah. So you either work for them or okay, I'm just kidding. So I am one, so I can joke a little bit. Well, well, Hanukkah is a very, very powerful uh, uh, celebration. It's not something that God tells them to celebrate in the Old Testament. It takes place uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a period of 400 years where the Bible is not being written there. And what we have there is a story of how the Jewish people took back their temple. Uh, from the evil ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, he was called, God in the flesh. He dared to call himself that. And this, this Greek ruler had taken over the city, had profaned the temple, had slaughtered many, many Jewish people. And there was this great revolt against him by uh, the Maccabean army, this Jewish army led by a man named Judas the Hammer, they call him. And through guerrilla warfare, they took back their temple and they, they rededicated it to God and they lit the candelabra that was there. And the story goes that they didn't have enough oil for it to stay lit, but God provided somehow and it stayed lit for eight days. And this is the celebration that, that happens every around Christmas time. This year it's Christmas week. Well, Jesus, during the Feast of Dedication, as it was called in his day, uh, he went toward the area and he said, I am the light of the world. He did so very, very purposefully. When you understand that, everything changes. Your whole perspective changes and what was once darkness is kind of flipped on its head and your whole perspective is altered like a 180 degree turn. I want to illustrate that through a video that we're going to show you and you got to watch it very, very carefully. Don't fall asleep or you're going to miss the point of it. Okay, go ahead. I'm lost in blindness, and I refuse to believe that I can see. One has to accept a life of darkness. Years from now, I can only tell my children not to believe that simple grace triumphs over utter darkness. I was born in sin, and I was conceived in sin. It doesn't matter to God that I live every day of my life in hopelessness. No longer can it be said that there is a God who hears the cries of His people. 
my whole life testifies to one truth. Blindness has robbed me of every good thing. And it is no longer true that God saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now I don't know much, but I know one thing for sure. I was born blind with no hope and no future. But then I met Jesus. And he turned everything in my life upside down. I was born blind with no hope and no future. Now I don't know much, but I know one thing for sure. God saves those who are crushed in spirit. And it is no longer true that blindness has robbed me of every good thing. My whole life testifies to one truth. There is a God who hears the cries of No longer can it be said that I live every day of my life in innocence. It doesn't matter to God that I was born in sin and I was deceived in sin. Simple grace triumphs over the darkness. Years from now, I can only tell my children not to believe that one has to accept a life of darkness. I can see. And I refuse to believe that I am lost in blindness. Isn't that good? Amazing how everything changes. The picture completely changes when you understand Jesus is the light of the world and what hope He gives. He has increased their joy, Isaiah says. Rejoice, rejoice, and rejoice. Reminds me of what Paul said. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it. Rejoice, for Jesus has come. Hidden truth number three, if that's not enough for you. Uh, in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 9, you see a description of this Messiah as a military leader, interestingly enough, coming with force uh, and violence even. And uh, some scholars say that this, this will happen at the end of the Great Tribulation, uh, which is still a future event to come. Verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat... Uh, this would be um, uh, when Gideon was um, uh, uh, defeated, uh, uh, his defeat of the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. Uh, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Again, speaking of the Messiah and his military power, probably at the end of the tribulation, uh, the bar across their shoulders, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment, wow, rolled in blood will be destined for burning. What a vivid description will be fuel for the fire. And then in verse 6, Isaiah jumping back through time, he talks about the male child who will come. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be, oh I love this, on his shoulders. It's not on some man's shoulders. It's on the shoulders of Jesus and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. I want to focus on that for a second. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or in some translations, the Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. It's very helpful to understand. You can miss it 
so quickly uh, what Isaiah is saying here. And a little bit of digging into the language is helpful. This term, wonderful counselor, uh, a wonder of a counselor, the Hebrew terminology there uh, is talking about a, a word that speaks of the supernatural. It's a word that sounds like Pele, like the, the soccer player, if you remember. And this is a word that talks about a council that's a supernatural council. Um, the advice of the Messiah, his counsel is not like the counsel of humans. It is a wonderful counsel. It is a supernatural counsel. So Rehoboam refused to listen to the counsel of the senior advisors. And he said, raise those taxes against those people. He refused to listen to, to proper wisdom. Solomon refused wisdom, ironically. Ironically, the most wise man who lived at one time made all these terrible decisions, took terrible counsel probably from his own soul. Yet this counselor who is coming, he's a counselor who gives supernatural counsel. His advice is not natural. It's not uh, something that comes from human ingenuity. It is a wonderful counsel, if you get the picture. And this is what God wants for us as believers. He wants us to know his counsel and he wants us to know that that counsel is greater than what any man can give. It is a supernatural counsel that God wants to give. He'll work in the natural but he'll also work in the supernatural. When your natural resources run out, there's something beyond and that's the power of God and his wisdom. Um, we see this kind of referred to uh, even by Jesus himself. John chapter 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Who is that? The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him and He lives with you and will be in you. Listen, if you're a Christian in this room, don't be a natural Christian. A lot of Christians are naturalists. And they only kind of operate in the here and now and they only kind of think about the, the natural world and they're no different in their thinking than the, than the evolutionary biologist. They just try and drop God into that picture. Listen, God is so much greater than the natural. And God has times and moments in our lives where He's just going to blow us away with a circumstance that will come that you just can't explain. And we can't limit Him to simply the natural world of operation. He doesn't operate only that way. He operates on a level that's completely different. He is a supernatural God. He's not just natural. He goes beyond that. And our relationship with God opens the door for this communion with the Holy Spirit who will be with you and in you forever, Jesus says. If you are a believer in this room, I don't care what you're... What your stripe is. I mean, some people, they say, well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a whatever. If you are a follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in you, He wants to counsel you. 
He wants to direct your life. He wants to guide you in a way that at times is going to be counterintuitive, a way that's going to seem backwards, a way that's going to seem unnatural. That's because He is supernatural. Don't miss that truth at Christmas time. Jesus said in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you, the Holy Spirit of truth, who will guide you into all all truth. He is a person, He is the person of God, and He wants to give you counsel. And Jesus is that wonderful counselor. He is the one who gives that that advice, if you will, that is way beyond what you would understand in the natural. So when your problems have got you up against the wall, let me tell you, you have one who is greater than that wall that you're looking at. Amen? And that's a great, great truth at Christmas time. Uh, so remember, God gives supernatural counsel. God, He has a nevertheless for you. And God wants you to see the light.